Kelly Gissendainer was on death row for almost two decades for the murder of her husband. She planned the murder and convinced another man to kill him in the woods. Afterwards, they set the evidence on fire. Their motive was to collect a life insurance policy and receive sole ownership of the house the Gissendainers had just purchased. A jury convicted Kelly of murder for her role in the crime, and after refusing a plea deal, she was given a life sentence and put on death row. But something amazing happened to her in prison. God reached Kelly in jail. The inmate became a Bible and theology student. She completed a whole Bible program while in prison. She went through the equivalent of our Gulf Training Center from her prison cell. Kelly even reached out to a theologian for counsel and help in understanding the scriptures. That man's name was Jürgen Moltmann of Germany. I'm not even sure she knew at the time, but she was corresponding with one of the most famous theologians in the past century. Already in his late 80s, Moltmann responded to Kelly's questions, and they soon exchanged at least 30 letters over the years. Moltmann even visited her in prison on occasion and flew to the U.S. to attend Kelly's graduation from the prison theology program. Well, the fruit of Kelly's transformation was on display for all to see. Kelly began to minister to the other women in prison. She led various Bible studies. Kelly counseled women through an air vent in her cell and prevented women from committing suicide. Her impact was great. Her impact on the inmates was so profound that dozens of people testified to try and get her death sentence changed to a life sentence because of the transformation they had seen with their very own eyes. How was Kelly's life changed? While she sat on death row, she began to understand what Jesus did 2,000 years ago on the cross. For the first time in her life, she encountered the truth of the gospel. God worked in her heart to bring her to repentance of her sins and faith in Christ to save her. In short, Kelly understood the truth of Good Friday, that Jesus was her substitute in our holy God's courtroom of perfect justice. This is what we'll see today in our passage. If you've not already turned there to Luke chapter 23, if you would turn there, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 25 that Isa just read for us. I have just one main point today, one sentence. Here it is. The greatest exchange in all of history took place on the cross. Repent, believe, and be set free. The greatest exchange in all of history took place on the cross. Repent, believe, and be set free. Well, the past couple weeks, we've been in John's gospel. We've looked at the Last Supper. We saw Jesus as a servant and Jesus as a teacher. We've now finished looking at the discourse, and we've moved into the gospel of Luke. But in the time in between, we know that Judas does, in fact, lead the authorities to arrest Jesus. He's taken to trial. And now the final phase of the trial was at dawn around 5 a.m. It was brief because there's no evidence, no witnesses, no proof. There's nothing to discuss, no prosecuting attorneys refuting it. There's three separate trials in less than an hour. Pilate, then Herod, then back to Pilate again. Pilate sees nothing in Jesus deserving of death. He determines to just punish him, release him. But there's a problem. Well, first, let me back up and give us some context for Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor in charge of Jerusalem. 
But by this point, he had already angered many of the Jews. Earlier, when the water supply in Jerusalem was inadequate, he began a building project to bring a greater water supply to Jerusalem. That sounded good. What a nice governor, but not so fast. He had paid for the project by plundering the temple treasury. He had used money that had been given to God's work for this project. The people were irate. They rioted. They stopped the protest. Well, actually, it kept going. The way Pilate stopped it is he sent soldiers in and they killed some of the Jews. That sent everyone in an uproar. And if that was the only thing Pilate had done, well, it wasn't. The other thing he did is he had a habit for decorating his palace with idols. The Jews didn't like that either. They appealed to Caesar. Caesar's not happy with being bothered and told Pilate to just remove the idols. See, the goal of the Roman governors was to keep the peace. Your role was to keep everything from becoming a mess. But it was a constant battle between Pilate and the Jews, the Jews and Pilate. If there was a third incident, Pilate knew it probably meant that he would have been out of a job for good. So Pilate has a decision to make, an important one. What to do with Jesus? People were angry with Jesus. Jesus was claiming to be the son of God. Another report of a Jewish riot and failure to control the people. Pilate feels, I'm as good as done. And this all came to a head during the Passover feast where the Jews celebrated being passed over from death in Egypt. There seems to be a tradition that the Roman Empire would allow one convicted felon to go free. Luke assumes the readers were aware of this tradition. And so Pilate gives them a choice. Okay, here's Jesus. He's been convicted of crimes based on trumped up charges. Now, look at who else we have. Barabbas. Now, this guy is kind of crazy. Jesus, on the one hand, a terrorist, a murderer, on the other hand. This guy's out of control. Pilate tells the crowd, here you go. Here's Jesus. Here's a terrorist. Who do you want to let go? The choice is obvious. It's obvious who they should let back into the public sphere. Someone who feeds the hungry, heals the sick and maybe upsets the religious leaders, or a terrorist who's already murdered people and will likely do so again. It's a clear-cut choice. Pilate thought it was obvious. He had stacked the deck so that they would certainly choose Jesus. Well, he had no idea what was coming. Pilate knows Jesus is innocent of any crimes. Jesus is not an enemy of the state. He hasn't killed anybody. In fact, he has a reputation for actually raising people from the dead. It's the opposite of a murderer. He gives life. In the mind of Pilate, he's thinking, surely when I give the alternative to the people, they'll want Jesus to be released. But what do the crowds do? Well, let's look back at our passage in verses 18 through 21. They all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection, started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. The crowds, oh, the crowds, they wanted nothing to do with Jesus. Release to us Barabbas, a revolutionary. He was the very kind of person that the chief priests claimed Jesus was. There's an irony here for sure. Jesus actually brought life. Barabbas took life. There's no vote taken here. It wasn't a split decision. They didn't draw straws. They didn't flip a coin. There was no discussion on, well, if we let Jesus go, this will happen. If we let Barabbas go, this will happen. 
No, in verse 18, they cried out with one voice. They're all unified. Away with this man. That wording there means to execute him. Verse 20, Pilate again tried to release Jesus, but verse 21, they kept shouting over and over again. That's an imperfect verb. This wasn't a one-time shout. The mob of people there continually chanting, crucify, 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 crucify. They were begging Pilate to send Jesus to the most horrifying death known to man. Well, Pilate responds again in verses 22 through 25. A third time he said to them, why, what evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I therefore will punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Back up in verse 23, the cry from the people was an urgent, demanding, and loud one. It's a continuous action over and over again, crucifying Pilate, wanted to release Jesus. You can see that in the text. He even offers to beat Jesus up a little bit, maybe trying to appease the crowd, but it's utter chaos outside. I mean, imagine what Barabbas is thinking. For a moment, let's just put ourselves in his shoes. You're on death row in a Roman prison. You're awaiting your death because you're a murderer. You know you'll be crucified for your crimes and you know you deserve it. So day after day, you're just anticipating justice. You don't know when it will come, but you think about the pain, the beating, the blood, the last breaths. And you hear the crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Now, Barabbas doesn't know for sure it's his time on this very day, but certainly he's listening. This could be my day. I'm on death row. They're asking for a criminal to be put to death. He's waiting. Then the door opens. The guards drag you out. Now you know this is it. The time has come. Execution day. They take you outside. You're standing there. Your nerves breaking down. For the first time, you see the sun. It's as bright as you've ever seen it, your eyes are hurting. They take off the chains, but there's no cross. Instead, the crowd cheers. You're being celebrated. There's a party. Barnabas has been set free. Actually, Barabbas. There is a Barnabas. Well, let's stick to Barabbas today. Barabbas has been set free. And just as Barabbas is celebrating, who's brought outside? Well, it's Jesus. Jesus has been set free, and he's carrying a cross. That's the cross you pictured yourself carrying. You realized that the mob was calling for his crucifixion, not yours. Jesus is carrying your cross. Maybe Barabbas thought to himself, that's my death, he's dying. That man is dying in my place. And just like that, Barabbas was free. Jesus bore the guilt and shame and curse and disgrace and death that Barabbas deserved, while at the same time, Barabbas received the release, the freedom, and the life that Jesus deserved. Barabbas was now a free man as far as the law was concerned. Now, it's interesting, Barabbas, I'm gonna get the name right now. I knew some of you would laugh at Barnabas, but Barabbas, it means son and Abba. It means son of a father. We learn that in the book of Matthew as well, that he's actually Jesus Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father. We have two Jesuses in our story, both son of the father, and yet these two men couldn't be more different. 
One rules by taking the lives of others, and the other rules by giving his own life. One wants to usurp the king, the other is the rightful king of all creation. One is guilty and will be set free, the other is an innocent man who's about to be killed. The real son of the father who is innocent will go to his death. That have freed the wrong son. Ironically, Jesus is going to be killed for the sort of crime that the man set free actually committed. Jesus literally took Barabbas' punishment for him. The killer was free, the innocent one was killed. And in the process, Jesus faithfully marched to his death. And he did so quietly. When you read through the crucifixion account, it's startling that Jesus doesn't speak up for his innocence. Why not? Why didn't he defend himself? Why not state his case for innocence when they were beating him? Why not speak up when he was stripped, beaten, mocked, and laughed at? Why did he remain silent? When you're innocent, you speak up. You argue your case. You show the proof. None of us like to be accused of something we didn't do, and so we argue our case. So why does Jesus remain silent here? Well, Isaiah 53, 7 predicted this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I once heard Pastor Tim Keller say that he thinks that Jesus stayed quiet because he was indeed taking our sin and judgment. He was taking the place of the guilty ones, us. He was being faithful to us and he wanted so what Keller says, he wanted it to be crystal clear that he was dying willingly. Jesus was not outsmarted by the authorities. This wasn't a mistake. This is critical for us to realize that neither Jesus nor the Father nor the Spirit was panicked and was thinking, oh no, now everything's messed up. They're killing the Messiah. Let's hurry up. Let's figure out plan B. Well, the crucifixion of the innocent Lamb of God had always been God's plan from eternity past. In Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. He was on a mission. His whole life was moving toward Golgotha, toward that place where he would die. His life was a death march toward the cross. He lived to die. In John 10, Jesus says, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own accord. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life. They got the wrong guy, but God put forward the right guy. That's the gospel. The one who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, the greatest exchange in all of history took place on the cross. Repent, believe, and be set free. Well, the story shows us that you and I are Barabbas. You and I are sinners. We sit in a spiritual prison bound and helpless, slaves to sin, awaiting the day when we get the just punishment we deserve. But then Jesus goes off to the cross in our place. He gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. We don't grasp the events of Good Friday unless we stand in Barabbas' shoes and find that they fit us. Do you understand that this is your story? The difficulty in your life isn't that you've been dealt a bad hand in life or that you are merely a victim of other people's actions or that you just need to work harder to realize your true potential. The biggest issue that you and I face is that because of our sin, we are separated from God. 
Like Barabbas, we need someone to take our place. If you don't follow Jesus, friends, I want to tell you today how to be reconciled to God. The way someone becomes a follower of Jesus and joins fellowship with him now and forever is by turning from your sin and believing in Jesus. All of us are faced with this choice, with two ways to live. We can go one direction or we can go another direction. By not choosing to follow Jesus, you've made a choice. Either we reject God in contempt, like the crowd sending Jesus to the cross with their echoing calls for his crucifixion, or we reject Jesus by caring more about the world, just like Pilate did. Pilate was concerned about his job security and what Caesar thought about him. Now, being a friend of Caesar's meant the world to him. The problem, though, is you can't be both a friend of God and a friend of the world. Pilate had a choice. The crowds had a choice. You and I have a choice. Will you let Jesus be your substitute and take your place? Will you repent of your sin, acknowledging that you're no better than Barabbas and trust in Jesus to save you? All of us must believe on Christ to be saved. There's no good work we can do to erase our wickedness. No act of obedience that can outweigh our sin or to cleanse us from our sin. We need to be born again. We need to give Jesus everything. We need Jesus to give us his life. On the cross, Jesus absorbed all our wickedness as believers. He has cast down perfect love upon us. First Peter 3 says, Christ died for sins once forever to bring you to God. That's why this happened. That's why the cross happened. It's to bring you to God. Jesus was leading a true revolution. You can always stop the Barabbases in the world who lead revolts against humanity. You can raid their headquarters. You can take those rebels down. This is what the religious leaders thought they were doing to Jesus. They thought they could put an end to him, his teachings, his disciples, and all the changes that his ministry was making. But even though they locked his body in a tomb, Jesus rose from the dead. We'll look at that on Easter. The chief priest couldn't get rid of him. That tomb couldn't contain him. Death couldn't stop him. Jesus' death looked bad. Now, in a way, his death was bad. But on that Friday over 2,000 years ago, all along, God was using it for good. God works all things together, all things together for our good and his glory. This past week, our family made some cinnamon rolls. Okay, I didn't make them, but I did eat one or three of them. It was my daughter Eliza's 13th birthday this week, and Gloria made her world-famous cinnamon rolls. We were so excited as they were cooking. I could smell the aroma from every meter of our home, and when they came out of the oven, they were looking exquisite. Now, the cinnamon rolls were great, but before Gloria made them, the ingredients on their own not very impressive. In fact, they were downright unappetizing, at least some of them. Butter. Now here's the secret to a good cinnamon roll. Way too much butter. And when you put the butter in, you put some more butter in, and then a little more. And then you've had enough. But does anyone just eat butter? I mean, put butter in a bowl and just eat it. Kids, don't try this at home. It's gross. Who eats flour? It's not what I call a nice dessert. And even worse, how about eggs? Now I know, I know, some of you like eggs. Many of you know, though, that I really don't. My whole family likes eggs, but when an egg is being cooked in my home, I look for an egg-free zone. 
The smell, the texture, the taste, not my favorite. And even, even if you like eggs, you certainly don't like raw eggs unless you're a boxer named Rocky. Now, some of you adults know what I'm talking about. You're not going to drink a raw egg. You're not going to eat a raw egg. Not good. Now, these raw ingredients on their own aren't great. Some of them are even unwise to eat all by themselves. But what happens when you take all of them together, when you mix all of those ingredients together and you kind of stir it up and you let the dough rise and you cook it? Well, as one of my friends says, God will take his hand of grace and he will stir up all the parts of your life. He'll take the good, he'll take the bad, he'll take the ugly and he'll mix it up for your good, your suffering. He's gonna use this COVID-19 for your good. He'll even use your failures for your good. He'll use your quarantine for your good. He'll stir it up in your life. You know, we shared last week about the death of our dear church member, Sheila Delgado, who was struggling from cancer in the Philippines. And I love the faith of our brother Bong. He wrote me this week during the funeral process. And he said something to the effect of, I told everyone, everyone around me in the Philippines that God will use this opportunity to, to speak into our family and to those who don't know Jesus and that the hope of God, even in times of death, will get into their hearts. During this time, I want to declare a victory on the eternal life that Sheila has now. Oh, I love that faith from Bong. Death is bad. Let's not sugarcoat this. Death is not a good thing. And yet somehow God will stir that pot and he'll take even the evil things and bring glory to himself. I love seeing that in Bong's response. It's a heroic response. It's a faith-filled response, even in the worst of times. He'll use your financial struggles for your good. He'll stir up your poverty and pain for your good and his glory. Your physical pain, if you're watching this, you're hurting. Maybe you even have COVID-19 or know someone who does. For us as Christians, he's stirring it all up. He's gonna stir it up and make you more like Christ to glorify him. You failed this week. You were impatient with your kids at distance learning. God's gonna stir up all things, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He's gonna stir it up like those cinnamon rolls for your good. You might sin. This might bring your sin into the light. It might hurt, but God will use it for your good. You've lost your job. It may not feel good. God doesn't say these things are good, but he does say that he works all things together for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. All things. He will stir it up in your life. A friend, if you're in Christ, no matter all the bad things that are happening in your life, God works them together for good because, because, because Jesus died on the cross. No matter the pain you're facing, Christian, you're saved. No one can take that away from you. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything, and all of creation will be able to separate us from his love. Oh, fellow Christian, Good Friday is good because of the cross. Good Friday is good because we can have reconciliation with God. Good Friday is good because we have hope. Our sins were placed on him. Without the cross, there's no hope. That's a Good Friday indeed, isn't it? It's where the greatest exchange happened. Well, the prisoner, Kelly Gissendaner, she figured this out. She understood that God will work it all for her good, that he'll stir it all up, that God took her place. So the biggest change in her life is that she found peace with God in the midst of her death sentence. Why? Well, she says she was in awe that Jesus took her place on the ultimate death row. 
She learned that no one is beyond redemption. She found peace as she approached death. On one occasion, she said, I've learned firsthand that no one, not even me, is beyond redemption through God's grace and mercy. And as she marched to her own death, that one day did come on death row, she could sing the words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. The greatest exchange, all of history took place on the cross. Repent, believe, and be set free. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you as sinners in need of grace. Oh, Father, would the good gospel on this Good Friday penetrate our hearts and transform our lives. Help us now be obedient to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.